Hey there guys, thanks for joining me here in the Holy Shed. A little bit late, I grant you, but uh, here we are. And thank you so much for all the love and good wishes that, you know, people have been sending to me over the last few days. It's been a bit of a rough week with both Pat and I testing positive and going down with COVID. Pat, it has to be said, seems to recover better from this than I do. (laughs) But we're both very, very grateful for our lovely daughter, Lizzie, being with us during this time to help to look after us. Um, She didn't intend to be here while we had COVID, but once she was here, I think she was in for a penny, in for a pound. And you know what? I think that we must have given birth to a miracle baby, really, because um, here she is in this little cottage with us for a week, both of us with COVID, and uh, she doesn't seem able to catch the darn virus. I don't know. It's it's just one of those amazing things, really. So I think it must be one of her superpowers, you know, that she does not catch the virus. Well, we'll see. Fingers crossed. Anyway, I'm right now focused on getting sorted for the course that I'm leading at Amadown Retreat Centre in a couple of days' time over Easter, which I can't wait for. And... Um, For those of you who are going to be joining me there, I can assure you, as far as I know anyway, that I'm going to be fine. I'm not infectious and, um, you know, I'm feeling better each day. Bit of a slow start in the morning, but here I am. So for this week, here in the shed, I'm just going to jump straight in without any further ado, if that's okay with you. So, you know, look, from a progressive Christian point of view, as we have been seeing It isn't hard to find reasons to dislike Paul, as he's commonly understood anyway. His writings in the New Testament are widely blamed for many, uh, you know, centuries of sexism and misogyny in the church, for seemingly slamming the door on female leadership, for asserting male headship in marriage and the family, requiring women to be silent and submissive and all that, even to cover their heads as a sign of submission. Also, I think, you know, he's blamed for upholding the practice of slavery, for condemning same-sex relationships, and really basically for creating doctrines about original sin, substitutionary atonement, and, you know, predestination of some people to spend eternity in bliss and others in everlasting torment, all that kind of stuff. Now, as I've already said, there are things in Paul's letters that I personally still struggle with and wish to take issue with. However, as I have been arguing, I believe Paul has been severely misunderstood and misrepresented, not least because, as we've seen, many of the writings attributed to him were in fact authored by other people decades, probably, or more after his death. But the other important point I've made is that In order to understand Paul aright, we need to take him out of the matrix of the 16th century Reformation, where he has been, you know, locked in for centuries, really. We've got to stop reading him through the lens of the Reformation rhetoric and place him back into his own matrix, the matrix of the first century of ancient Rome, where he belongs. Um, You know, let him speak the language which basically got him executed in the end. Because look, Paul's message wasn't personal salvation from hell and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't Christianity against Judaism, which it's often seen as being. Paul's message 
was uh, you know Christian or Messianic Judaism, because he always remained a Jew, against the empire. Paul preaches from the very heart of that Christian, you know, prophetic Judaism against the injustice of imperialism. And once we get that starting point right, as well as, you know, the sorting out of what he did and didn't write, we can start to hear Paul maybe judge him afresh by entirely different criteria. So that's what we've been trying to do. I've said before in the shed that I get really fed up with all the liturgical language of lord and king and ruling and all that sort of language which is so commonplace in churches of all traditions and this is why you won't find uh, those kind of terms featuring much if at all in my own prayers and liturgy i think that in our world of the 21st century we need different language different metaphors for divinity Metaphors which are more organic, you know, more inclusive, non-hierarchical, more um, linked to, as I say, the world and the issues of today. But here's the thing, you see. It was Paul who, you know, big time gave us the language of lordship. But the real question is, why? Why was that so important to him? I believe the reason is this because his mission lay in presenting the crucified and risen Jesus and the reign of love, the kingdom, that he proclaimed as a radical alternative to the imperial theology of Rome. Because in Paul's lifetime, the Roman emperor was deemed to be divine. You know, Augustus, near all these people, they were called God, son of God, God of God. You know, Caesar was Lord, Redeemer, Saviour of the world. All of this language, which is really familiar to any churchgoer, didn't actually have its beginnings in Christianity. This was the language of the imperial theology of Rome. Uh, And that was the world that Paul lived in. The divinity of the emperor, uh, you know, is made clear verbally from Latin authors like Virgil, Horace and Ovid, and visually from uh, relics that have been found, from coins and cups and statues, altars, you know, temples and forums. It was there in ports in ancient Rome, the roads they built, the bridges, the aqueducts, you know, the landscape that they transformed and cities that they established. The message was everywhere throughout Rome in those times. Uh, it was very, very clear that this is how Caesar was viewed as divine. Um, You know, in today's world, it would be, you know, on the billboards, it would be in TV commercials, social media and all over the internet. That's how widespread the message was in ancient Rome. There was no doubt about it. There's an archaeology of Roman imperial theology. And without understanding this and getting a grasp on it, it's impossible to properly interpret Pauline Christian theology. We, I think, have devastatingly turned Paul into a Reformation Christian and uh, embedded him in all the legalistic nitpicking arguments 
surrounding that area, which, which he wouldn't even begin to understand, let alone have any interest in. Paul opposed empire. That's what Paul was about. But not just the Roman Empire. He opposed the imperialism which lies at the core of all systems of dominations. He talked about principalities and powers, didn't he? You know, imperialistic injustice and oppression was nothing new to Rome, uh, and it didn't end with Rome. But it was this, as Paul saw it, manifest in the Roman Empire that he was so, uh, you know, vehemently opposed to. The British Empire was a system of domination that exploited peoples and resources all around the world. I grew up with that map where nearly all the world seemed to be pink. It was all called the British Empire. And I know, I know that some people argue that what we did was take civilization out there. You know, I mean, that was how it was talked about, wasn't it? Missionaries went to darkest Africa, to darkest India and to these places. Uh, and, and the claim is, well, we took civilization, we took culture. But the fact of the matter is we trashed other people's civilizations and cultures in the process of imposing our own upon them and vastly enriched ourselves, by the way, in the process. History has seen dozens of empires doing something similar to that. You know, in my lifetime, I have witnessed the empire of the USSR, the Soviet, Soviet Republic, uh, China, Hitler's Third Reich happened just before I was born. Uh, Putin, I think, today would love to renew Russia's empire. And then there's America, you know. Uh, American imperialism is a huge feature of the modern world that we live in. I mean, just listen to a little clip that I'd like to play you by John Dominic Crossan, uh, who, if you don't know... Crossan, I've quoted him numerous times in the shed and will do in the future. He's an Irish New Testament scholar specialising in Jesus theology, uh, but who has lived, m you know, many, many decades in the United States. And this is what he makes of it there. Imagine if Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in America. We know he wrote, you know, to the Romans, to the Philippians. Let's see, to the Americans. He might say something like this. I read, I read that you talk about inalienable rights, God-given rights, rights from creation, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness you mentioned. And I like that, says Paul, because it reminds me of Genesis chapter 1. And you have this thing, a little strange for me, but it's your, it's your world called the Pledge of Allegiance. And you talk about being under God with liberty and justice for all. And that, I like that because that's, that's what the whole Bible is about. And that's what I've been writing about, liberty and justice for all under God. By the way, dear Americans, I do notice that you seem excited about this under God phrase. Don't worry about it. If you establish liberty and justice for all, you'll be under God whether you know it or not. But I'd like to ask you Americans a question, says Paul. Dear Americans, dear fellow Christians in America, how is it going for you? How are you doing on inalienable rights for everyone? 
in the whole world, apparently. How are you doing on liberty and justice for all? How is it going for you? <laughs> I love Crosson, don't you? And what a great way to get across the point that he's making there. Nowadays, of course, you know, as time's moved on, maybe imperialism takes more subtle forms in our world, you know, through, uh, through multinationals and the power that they exert over governments and world affairs. It's often said that actually it hardly matters which governments are in power from the point of view of multinationals because there's a sort of power and imperialism that transcends even national governments. Um, what about imperialism, you know, through economic power in general, through media conglomerates, through digital social media platforms and so on and so forth, you know, the wealthy powerful and privileged uh, in all kinds of ways still exert uh, imperial power in our world still exploit people uh, and peoples for their own ends the roman empire offered world peace pax romana was you know the catchphrase that was you know they had it on their banners and it was you know taken all over the place pax romana peace the peace of rome but it was peace based on the common principle of peace through victory. That's how Roman peace, that's Roman uh, imperial theology, peace through victory. We conquer and then we can bring peace. And before Paul entered the scene, it was the opposition to this Pax Romana uh, by Jesus that got him executed by the Romans. Palm Sunday, yesterday of course, uh, proclaims the message loud and clear. And make no mistake, you know, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey wasn't just a nice little Bible story for Sunday schools and the, and the rest. It wasn't about a day out, you know, singing happy clappy choruses, hallelujah and all that. It was in fact a mind-boggling, radical profoundly dangerous political act by Jesus. This is my uh, favourite picture of the event, painted by a French artist in the middle of the 19th century. And uh, I'd just like you to picture this. Picture two processions coming into Jerusalem. You know, this one that we've got pictured here before us, with Jesus arriving from the east down the Mount of Olives into the city, um, you know, and remember, Jesus was from the peasant village of Nazareth. His message was the kingdom of God. His followers were overwhelmingly peasants from the same background as he himself was, you know. And he journeyed with his followers to Jerusalem from Galilee, about a hundred miles north. Uh, a journey that actually occupies the whole central section and the central dynamic of Mark's gospel. You don't always notice that, but, but a whole batch in the centre of Mark's gospel is basically following this journey. And all kinds of things happen along the way, and that's what we focus on. But Mark's story is all directed, it's all built around this journey of Jesus toward Jerusalem. Uh, on the opposite side of the city, uh, from the west, picture Pontius Pilate. Roman governor of, of Idumea, 
Judea and Samaria, entering Jerusalem at the head of a column of imperial cavalry and soldiers. Jesus' procession proclaimed the kingdom of God. Pilate's proclaimed the power of empire. The two processions, which uh, I'm just imagining as happening at the same time, because Pilate uh, would have lived, his, his sort of normal residence was out on the coast of Joppa, but uh, for such an important weekend as the Passover, when uprisings and trouble might occur, he would have returned a little bit like this picture uh, presents to us, with his armed forces to uh, get the message across clear and loud. We are in charge. Don't mess with us. And so it's these two processions, which I'm imagining happening perhaps at the same time, that embody this central conflict that led to Jesus' execution. The might of Rome would be symbolised by mighty steeds, male war horses, the equivalent of tanks at the time for the Roman Empire. And the angelic figure behind, I think it's Caesar probably, that's being pictured here really, Um, but the the angelic figure behind Caesar symbolises the religious and theological underpinning of Rome centred on an emperor who is the Son of God, capital S, capital G, the Lord, the Redeemer, the bringer of peace through victory. But in a magnificent act of political satire, if I just go back to that image there, in a magnificent act of political satire, Jesus arrives on a donkey with a foal. Now why the foal? And I love this picture, don't you? It's so beautiful. Why the foal? Is it an incidental reference? Oh, you know, there happened to be a a foal there. Um, It's actually, you know, cited in the prophecies from the Old Testament that are associated with this event. Um, Is is it sort of poetic license? I mean, he couldn't ride two animals at the same time, could he? He rode a donkey with a foal trotting alongside. No, I think what this signifies is that the donkey was female. It's a mother with child that we're looking at here. Not a powerful stallion, but a lowly donkey and a female one at that, still suckling her young. I mean, guys, how utterly fantastic is that? What magnificent lampoonery Jesus is engaging in here. I just love it. Jesus was crucified, not because of some hideous requirement of God that an innocent substitute had to die so that God could forgive all us horrible sinners. I mean, as I've said many times, what kind of God would that be? Is that a God you can believe in? It's not a God I can believe in, I have to tell you. Anyway, more of that elsewhere another time. No, Jesus was executed because he offered a different approach to the Roman Empire because what he offered challenged the Roman Empire. A peace not based on violence and conquest, you know, and imperialism, but on love, on sacrifice and reconciliation. A suckling donkey, (laughs) you know, was perfect to signify a different kind of kingdom, a different kind of authority, a different kind of peace so it's a lovely you know beautiful image isn't it 
out of the donkey and the foal. Paul was a Jewish visionary, you know, following in the footsteps of Jesus. And they both claimed that the kingdom of God was already present and operative in this world. That we always have choice and we're always choosing between empire and dominion or domination, uh, both at a collective and a personal level on the one hand, and the reign of love, of justice and peace on the other. And that's still, you know, the choices that our world faces today. It's the choice we all face every day. Paul opposed the mantras of Roman normality with a vision of peace through justice. And as with Jesus, it cost him his life. I mean, we don't know exactly where or when Paul died. Luke's account at the end of the book of Acts simply says that Paul lived in Rome uh, for two years at his own expense, that he was welcoming visitors and proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about Jesus. I think this is how Luke wanted to finish his story. I think that writing, uh, you know, maybe a generation later, Luke would have known probably how Paul died, but that wasn't that wasn't what he wanted to give us as the final picture of the spread of the message of the kingdom of God in, in the book of Acts. I think this is how he wanted it to finish, with no Roman victory over Paul. And yet the very high likelihood is that Paul died as a martyr under Nero as did Peter, which is an irony in itself because they went quite different paths and had a different emphasis in the gospel that they preached. And yet uh, they probably died together in Rome under Nero in 64 CE. We know that Nero scapegoated the Christian population in Rome, accusing them of causing the fire uh, being arsonists, causing the fire that tore through whole sections of Rome. Uh, I mean, it, it's widely believed that Nero actually started the fire himself, and he wanted to use this as a way to scapegoat uh, the Christian population, which were a big thorn uh, in his flesh. Nero's brutality, you know, in response was utterly off the scale. You know, Christians were famously torn to death you know, by animals or fastened to crosses. And when daylight failed, uh, their bodies were set on fire to serve as lamps by night. In Paul's context, the statement, Jesus is Lord, was basically a declaration of treason. A courageous rebellion against Rome's imperial theology and an announcement of this different kind of king and kingdom based on love and justice, on egalitarianism, <clears throat> where, you know, women and slaves were treated as equals. Because, as Paul famously declared, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female for all are one in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's not just a verse in Galatians. That is a statement of opposition, of rebellion against the whole status quo of Rome. As I see it, you know, Jesus is Lord is, you know, a fairly meaningless statement in the world that I inhabit today. You know, shouting that from street corners as people do, and you know what? I've done it myself. Uh, says little 
about the kingdom Jesus and Paul proclaimed in their day. I think it may even convey something contradictory to their message in an age when there's great suspicion, you know, about hierarchies and authority figures and the like. I think the challenge to us is to find fresh metaphors, fresh language and images to describe the utterly subversive love of God revealed in Christ in an age of climate crisis, an age of Black Lives Matter protests, of trans hatred, um, the rise of right-wing populist movements and the deliberate exploitation of social media to spread fear, lies and misinformation. In, in that world, we need a different language for divinity because it's a very different situation to the one that Paul lived in. And yet the underlying issue is the same. It's still Christ versus empire. Paul's essential challenge, as I said a moment ago, is not about personal salvation from hell. It's about how to embody communally the radical vision of a new creation in a way far beyond our present best hopes for freedom and democracy and human rights can possibly convey. You know, this was something of infinitely greater radical radicality. The Roman Empire was based on peace through victory, playing on fear. Imperialism always requires victory, always plays on fear and creates peace, so-called, through fear and conquest. Still does that today. So here's the question, guys. Where does imperialism show up in our world? That's something to go away and think about. I mean, where do we see coercion, control, exploitation, injustice? Where is the clash of vision and values for our world? And therefore, as Bonhoeffer asked, who is Jesus Christ for us today? If we look back through the centuries, I think we'd have to say that following that fusion um, you know, with the political power of Rome back uh, in the 4th, 5th centuries, um, we, we've ended up at times through history with a church that is much more an expression of empire than it is or was of kingdom of God. And that's the challenge still with us today. So, hey, there's much more to delve into with Paul. Maybe we'll continue with it. Who knows? I mean, do let me know. Uh, any questions that you have about Paul. Meanwhile, here is a prayer. <clears throat> God who showed up in the world through a peasant mystic, devoid of trappings of power or coercion, reveal, revealing the brittle facade of empire with a gentle jenny and a suckling foal. We are grateful for every woman and man who chooses to forego the imperial strategies of control or compulsion in order to find a different and better path to peaceful cohabitation. In our daily lives and in our world, may we never settle for cheap agreement in which integrity is sacrificed or voices forcibly silenced. And yet, may we also be fearlessly intolerant of everything that excludes oppresses or limits humanity. Amen. Love that picture. 
Okay, well, as you can hear, my throat's not the best. Uh, so I'm going to finish, but uh, maybe a little bit of medicinal help, you know, along the way. So if you've got a drink, you may like to just join me in a toast. A toast to life beyond COVID <laughs> for us, for everybody. Um, a toast to a life beyond imperialism, beyond people like Putin marching into Ukraine and creating such horrendous havoc in people's lives. Um, but all the many other subtle forms of imperialism in our world. Here's, in, here's to their downfall. Here's to the rise and rise of the peaceable kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, here's to you guys. Here's to life. Lachaim. There you go. Thank you very much for being with me for this uh, <coughs> coughing visit to the shed. And um, if you like what we're doing here and you want to support me and the shed, you can do so by buying me a coffee or a whiskey or whatever through the coffee site, which uh, the link is here. And it's always at the top of the uh, posts on the Holy Shed Facebook page. So let me finish with a blessing. The blessing of God, the eternal goodwill of God, the shalom and salam of God, the wildness and warmth of God be among us and between us now and always. Amen. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, I haven't got anything else um, to give you, but I will have soon. And um, I'll see you in a few days time. I expect to be with you on Easter Day in the shed. Um, have a good, have a precious holy week. Um, it's a story that needs to be explored again and again in different ways and often ridding ourselves of the overlays of doctrine and prejudice that, have, that we've received over, over the years. Um, so may you have a blessed holy week. Be kind to people around you. Be kind to yourselves. I'll try to be kind to me my body uh, stay human i'll see you soon bye